Well, as we get started in the book of Judges, I'm excited because even though it is a, if you were here, you heard uh, Dr. Michelle Knight in the last, last week, you know, it's, it's narrative, it's story. There's a lot to it. Um, there's some shocking things. There's a lot that's going to go on. You know, today we're going to look at really just what begins to be, it starts off pretty good, but then it ends up kind of in a mode of, of failure. Um, and, it, you know, as I was thinking about this, it's kind of this halfway deal. You know, how many of y'all have experienced, maybe you, you tell your kids, hey, you know, I want you to clean your room. And then you go upstairs and you realize their version of clean your room is not necessarily what you were thinking, right? I mean, you get up there and, you know, it's just kind of they've scooted all the junk from one side of the room to the other side of the room. You know, the bed is, you know, they just kind of throw something up, a cover, a couple pillows that's made. You know, it's kind of this halfway, well, they're going to do it, sort of, you know, but not really. Um, you know, and, and we do that a lot in our own lives. You know, there's things that we go, yeah, I'm going to sort of do that and get that done, but not really do it all the way and complete what's going on. You know, I mean, I'm glad that that's not what our doctors do, you know, after they sew you up. Hey, did you do everything? Well, I, I think I got it all there, you know. I mean, gosh, that, we don't want that. We want people who, who finish the job, who complete what's going on. And the truth is, though, a lot of us in our own lives, this happens. And we're going to see this this morning, this, this idea of kind of partially doing what they're called to do gets done. And a lot of times that resonates with us. As we go through this, too, in the book of Judges, I really want us to be careful not to go, that was them back then. Oh, those dirty Israelites. You know, gosh, those bad people back then. You know, now we are not that. We are wonderful. We do everything the Lord wants us to do. Let's be careful of that, and let's also be careful to always point the finger and go, oh, that broken world that's out there. Boy, it's broken. But all of us in here, man, we're, we're really good. We're good people. Because I think that can be the tendency sometimes when we look at the Word of God, we tend to put it out on everybody else, but very rarely do we go, but what does it say about me? And even for me standing up here, I can't tell you and preach and and talk through the scripture this morning and go, y'all need to hear this and then walk out the doors and not examine my own heart and go, what is this, what does this mean for me? So as we start through this book and as we roll through here, it's going to be a lot of incredible stories, a lot of great things, a lot of horrific things, but I really want us not to miss the opportunity to really do a deep dive and examine our own hearts and to not always just think, well, those are those people and that's how they act and that's the brokenness of the world. But I really want us to figure out how does this book, the book of Judges, this time period that we're going to walk through, what does it say about you and about me? And as we get started, the book starts off, chapter one, it says, after the death of Joshua. After the death of Joshua. A lot of the books start this way. But Joshua has, has died. And if you read through the book of Joshua, you'll see kind of where they're at. And we're going to walk through a couple passages in Joshua. But here's basically what's going on. Here's the, the 12 tribes. You can see that. What has happened is Joshua's gone in. The Lord brought him out of Egypt. They wandered. 
He's bringing them back into the promised land. Joshua's command was to go in, divide it, go north, go south, conquer everything. And then the last thing he was supposed to do, his last responsibility was to allot the land to the 12 tribes. And so Joshua has done that. He's gone in, he's conquered the land, and now he is allotting these different segments and territories to the 12 tribes. And so as we pick up in chapter 1, this is where we're at. And they're at a place where they're supposed to be going in and finishing the job, like we just talked about. They're supposed to go in and settle in the territory and push out any remaining Canaanites that are in that land. Before we get there, I want to I do a little bit of background. Leviticus 18 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. That's where he's bringing them out, brought them out of Egypt. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. So this is where we're at now. They've gone in, they've conquered the land, Joshua. Now they're supposed to settle it and finish the job. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. So what I want to set up a little bit here is just this idea of what's going on. Because a lot of people, I think, sometimes read the Old Testament. Um, A lot of conversations I've had throughout the years where, um, you know, talking with high school people, college people, where they go, "I I don't understand how a loving God can go in and say, destroy everybody. You know, totally annihilate man, woman, child, every living thing and go in. This is your, you know, a lot of people see that and they go, man, this is a, it's not a loving God. This is a harsh God. There's no way I would have anything to do with that God. But you see here in Leviticus that God is saying, you must not have anything to do with them. Just like in Egypt and now in the land of Canaan. And let me just read a little bit out of Leviticus 18, because right now you're going, well, that doesn't, they're just people, right? Um, I mean, it's not like he's saying, hey, you know, let's go down and and conquer the the east side of Conway because those are awful people, or let's go out west and run everybody out over there because they're bad people. Listen to what was going on in Leviticus 18. Right after he says, you cannot be anything like them. It says, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whatever she was born in the same home or elsewhere. And I don't have to keep reading. It goes on and on and on of just wickedness and sexual immorality. And I, I mean, all the way through to, to same-sex stuff, to bestiality, to child sacrifice. 18, it's on your reading plan for this week. You can read it and kind of walk through that. But this is what's going on in the land of Canaan. These were not just, hey, this is just another good group of people, and that's your land, so you need to drive them out. No, there was wickedness that had never been seen before. And he's saying, you cannot go in there and become like them. And the only way to do that is to push them out. So this was a wicked people. 
who served wicked gods and do, do not look to the God, the true God, as their God and Father. And so it goes on in Deuteronomy. It says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So this is Israelites. He chose them. They're his. They are to be set apart. Does that sound familiar? They are to be set apart from this evil world that was going on. And so this is why God is saying, when you go in, you're to drive them out. Have absolutely nothing to do with them. And then later on in Deuteronomy, it, all, it talks about all the other wickedness that's going on, the sorcery, the witchcraft. And you can look at that list there. But it says, whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God is about to drive them out before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. So we're going to talk a whole lot more about this as we continue on uh, through the book of Judges. But I, I want to just kind of set the, the tone here for the fact that this is not, these are not just great people that God didn't like. And this is not also uh, some sense of, of ethnic cleansing. Really, it's a moral purging. It's a push the people out. And if you remember what uh, Michelle talked about, she also talked about it wasn't always destroy every man, woman, and child, kill them all. And a lot of times what we'll see in Judges, he actually said, drive them out. Get them away from you. And we'll talk more about why that's the case. Del Ralph Davis said this, these texts that I just read show that the conquest was an act of justice. Yahweh's justice. Israel was the instrument of his just judgment upon a corrupt and perverted people. A corrupt and perverted people. See, God had chosen them to be set apart, to be holy, to be his. And he's commanded them, this is your land that I promised you. I'm going to be faithful. But when we get in there, you've got to drive these folks out. You've got to push them out of the land this is your allotment, and this is the same thing that Joshua has said as well as we look in Joshua 23. It says, you yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. And let's not run past this too quick. So they've seen this. They've been brought out of Egypt generation after generation. They've been given the land. They've seen the conquest that God has been with Joshua and the people through everything. And now he's saying, this is it. We're at the point. I'm nearing the end of my life. And he says, remember how I've allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations that I conquered, the nations that the Lord was with the people through all of that. He has been faithful over and over and over. But he's very clear. You will not go in and set up shop with these people. You need to drive them out because of their immorality, their idol worship, their child sacrifice. I mean, this wasn't, these weren't just great folks that just happened to live where they were headed. This was wickedness. And God is a holy God. 
you know, as you read the scriptures, we see that God is a holy, he, had, he don't want to have anything to do with sin. He can't. He's a perfect God. He is not going to be in the presence of sin. And so this is what's going on as we enter this first chapter of Judges. Joshua has now passed away, and he has given the 12 tribes the job of moving forward, settling in the land, and basically finishing the job. Finishing what he had started and what he had fulfilled through the Lord. And we're going to see kind of through three different stories, uh, we're going to see some victory. Um, we're also going to see some, some loss. And you're going to experience that kind of through narrative, through different stories as we walk through these sections here in this first chapter. But it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Okay, so we start off, hey, we're doing pretty good. He chooses Judah. They're probably the strongest one. Um, they're the only, one of the only ones that survives of the tribes. There's some foreshadowing here. Who comes from Judah? David. Who's in the line of David? Jesus. So we have some foreshadowing, foreshadowing of what's going on. And they also, Judah goes to his brother Simeon and says, hey, go up with us. And I was reading through this and studying, and you know, one of the commentators mentioned, you know, when, there's, when the Israelites show tribal community, God blesses them. So they've, they've done some things good here. They've inquired of the Lord. They said, who, who should go? He says, Judah. And so they begin to go in and to settle the land. And they begin to have some victory as they go in. So one of the first things it says is when they... When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. So they go in, and they, they start to have success because the Lord is with them. They're completing the job. They're doing the things that they are supposed to do. And then we run into this first little, this little story that will have kind of a sub-point here. This king, Adonai Bezek, they run into him, evil king, they go in, they conquer the land, he flees, they chase him down, they catch him. And what do they do? They cut off his thumbs and his toes. Ooh, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? A um, couple different things going on here. One, if you're a warrior, you're a king, you have no thumbs, you can't hold a sword, you have no big toes, you now can't stand and fight. So it's one form of removing this person from any kind of power that he had as a warrior. It's also a form of humiliation. And then later it says, you know, they take him back and that's where he, that's where he dies. But it's also important, if you look here, it says, and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. So he's a vicious guy. He's done this over and over. And then he said, you know, now the Lord has paid me back. So God is with them. God is allowing them to have some victory, to have the opportunity to settle in their land. And they're, and they're going about things the right way. They inquired of the Lord. They've had some victory. Now, one thing that is interesting, though, this is something that there is a little bit of they're having revenge that really should have been the Lord's when they cut off his thumbs and his toes. So you get to see a little bit of this 
uh, canonization seeping in. A little bit of this pagan structure that that's what they did. That's the kind of stuff they did. That's what this guy, the evil king, did to, as he says, 70 other kings. So you get to see a little bit of seep starting to come in. And then it goes on and it says they have other victories. It says, after that, the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living there, and they have victory. So there's some victories going on, and they're battling, and the Lord is with them. And then you kind of move into this second little story. So don't forget this one, because God uses these narratives so that the people will remember. So you've got this first one with this evil king, where they take off his thumbs and his toes. And then you have this little aside with Caleb and his daughter, Aksa and Othniel, or Othniel, who's one of the first judges, which we'll talk about later in the book. But Caleb goes up and he says, hey, whoever takes this land, I'm going to give my daughter. And so Othniel says, that's great. He goes in, he wipes them out, he conquers them, he drives them out. And so Caleb says, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. And through this process, she urged him, hey, get Let's get some land. And so it's not really clear if it was her, if it was him, but Caleb gives them some land. And then you have this little, this episode where she rides up and uh, she falls off her donkey. And and as the text reads, it's kind of, she bowed down to him. She showed him honor. She showed him respect. And she says, you know, we're going to need some springs. If we're going to have this land that's a dry kind of basin, we need some springs. And so he gives her the springs of water as well, the upper and the lower springs. Now, part of it, you, you kind of read into this, and you're like, what, why is this here? What's, what's going on here in the middle of these battles as they're going in and occupying territory? But you have this little scene of this couple who is now married, and they've got a plot of land, and the father gives them springs. And one thing's really interesting is water. What does water symbolize? Water symbolizes life. Water symbolizes the opportunity for living things, for protection. And so you see a father allowing his daughter to have everything she needs, a husband, a brave husband. Othniel is actually one of the good judges, as we'll see in the future. Now she has land, she has springs, so things will be fertile. So she has these things that are set up. And this is in stark contrast to what we'll see later in the book. Because in the book, women are oppressed, they're abused, the men throw them out. But here you see a little picture of hope, a little picture of life, a picture of what God is doing for his people. So this first point, God is faithful and provides everything needed to have victory over the enemy. He's going to be faithful. We're going to see this. This idea of faithfulness, we sang about it earlier. God is faithful even when we aren't. Even when we begin to do a few things and have a few things seep in. But God is faithful. And God will provide everything we need to overcome the enemy. And a couple things that we got to see there through those two little stories. One is this idea of justice. 
even though they went about it in a way that was a little more savage than what God would have said, leave that to me. But we get to see that God is a just God. He's going to have justice. He's going to do that for his people. But we also see this idea of protection. That God's going to protect his people. God is going to be faithful to do those things. And then we move on to chapter 19. This is where things, I mean, verse 19. This is where things shift a little bit. So we've started off, hey, we've got some victory. Joshua's in the land. He passes away. They've got their marching orders. They do things sort of right. Hey, we inquire of the Lord. That's good. Then they go in. They begin to have some victories. We get to see a little bit of what God is doing through his justice, his protection. But then it says this, says the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive out the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. This is really important. They were unable to drive the people out. So this is the beginning of what we're going to see where they feel like, hey, we're, we're doing sort of what we need to do but that you get this compromise that begins to take place. And part of this talks about, you know, there was this, the copper age, now the iron age is in. They've got these iron chariots. But let's be honest, what, God is God. God can do whatever he wants. God can give victory to who he wants to give victory. And he can give defeat to who he wants to give defeat. But I think we see that there's some fear here. There's some rational, th- oh, well, we couldn't really drive them out Well, they had these you know, these iron chariots, they were stronger than we were. And I think you, they begin to put way more stock in themselves. And then it goes on, it says, The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. So it's interesting again, to this day. So it begins to talk about living together. Living among, and you're going to see this language as we walk through these next few verses. That now you've got the Israelites who were told, and remember the verses we talked about, they were told to drive them out completely. Not just because God didn't like them, but because they were wicked and they were evil and they were perverse. And he said, you got to drive them out. And now we get this picture, this first picture of, well, we couldn't totally drive them out. And now, well, we couldn't really dislodge them. So now we're kind of living among them and they're living among us. And then we get this other, this third story. Um, you know, before we kind of had some characters. Remember Michelle talked about that. When you got characters, they, they usually have some identity, some background. You've got that, the evil king and then you've got Othniel and, and Aksa and Caleb and giving them in marriage. Well, now we've got this this guy that appears and he doesn't have a name. But this is really an important piece as we look through these failures. It says, Now the house of Jacob attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, that's important, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. So now let's think about, what does this sound familiar to? Rahab. Remember the story of Rahab? 
the prostitute where they go into Jericho. But there's one huge difference here. What did Rahab do? Rahab said, the God of the Israelites is the true God. Rahab bowed down and said, your God is God. And she went out and she lived with them and became a part of them. Here you've got this no-name guy who tells them about a secret entrance. So they go in, they conquer everything. They drive them out, but check out what he did. He then went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is the name to this day. So you see what's going on here? You've got this compromise with a guy who did not say, hey, yeah, you're God. The God of the Israelites is the true God. He just goes, hey, thanks for making a deal with me. Thanks for doing that. Now I'm just going to go over here and build the exact same city that I had with the exact same wickedness, the exact same idol worship, raise up my Asherah pole, do all the same things that we were doing before right here beside you, but just in another place. So once again, you see this, this compromise, this slow integration and this slow seepage of them not completely doing what they were called to do. Sometimes what looks like victory is actually loss if we depend and trust on ourselves rather than God. Just a little subpoint here. You know, I think in this story, they thought, man, this was wonderful. We met this guy, we got a leg up, and now we get to go in and conquer him. But we see once again that what seems like a victory to them is really a major loss. And it continues. But Manasseh did not drive out the people, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. They continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites who remained among them. You see this over and over. Nor did Asher drive out those living in. The people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. So you see this gradually gets worse and worse. From south to north, they go through the tribes. So there's a little bit of success with Simeon, with Judah. And then as they go north, there's more failure and more failure and more failure. And some of them have a little bit of what they think is success as well, because it says, well, they couldn't drive them out, but they put them into forced labor. So once again, what they thought, hey, this is a huge victory. This is great. Look, we've put the Canaanites into forced labor. But all that does is continue to allow them to be together in what will eventually be, as we'll see in chapter 2 and on, a downfall not only militarily, but eventually spiritually. And it goes on, it says, Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. The Amorites, so this is interesting, you get all the way down to the tribe of Dan, it says, the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country. So they didn't even get down into their allotment. So this is kind of toward the end of this where you're going, okay, now this is really starting to fall apart. Because before it was like they went in, they sort of drove them out, kind of did it, but not really. And they stayed with them and they put them into forced labor. And now, though, you see that the Danites, they didn't even get in there. The Amorites just drove them back to the hill country. Not even allowing them to be 
in their allotment, in the land that God had given them. And so this gradual flow that is just gets worse and worse and worse, which also sets up the entire book of these cycles that just go down further and further. If you read through Judges, I'm sure many of you already have read through it, but you see the judges that are named at the beginning, and then they get worse, and they worse, and eventually they're not even named. And back in Deuteronomy, I want to remind you why this is so important. It says, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. So this is what they were supposed to do. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. And what we see is over and over and over again, they didn't do it. They went in, they couldn't do it, They didn't do it, and they ended up living among them, living with them, all the way down to the tribe of Dan who didn't even get their allotment. I think one of the big points here is that when God's people compromise, their partial obedience leads to complete disobedience. See, I think a lot of times we think, well, if I just sort of do it, if I sort of do what God's asked me to do, then that's good enough, right? If I just kind of get there. But I think we see that God goes, no. This partial stuff, partly doing it, halfway doing the job. What it leads to that we'll see in the next chapters to come is this spiritual decay and this moral decay with God's people who are holy and set apart. And remember, God's a perfect God. He does not want to be around sin, and he won't be around sin because he's a perfect God. And we move into chapter 2, just the first little section. And it says the angel of the Lord. And I won't go really deeply into this, but if you look at the Old Testament and when you see the angel of the Lord, you know, God is a complex God. He is a triune God, the Spirit, the Son, the Father. And because of his complexities, we see this, the angel of the Lord through the Old Testament. And this is one of those instances where the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Not in bodily form, not the incarnation, not Jesus, but it's the pre-incarnate Christ. And here's what he says. I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. You have disobeyed me. And then this question, why have you done this? Why have you done this? After everything I've done for you, bringing you out of Egypt, bringing you back into the promised land, giving you the land, driving out the inhabitants, all I asked you to do was complete the job, finish it, push them out, have nothing to do with them because you were my chosen people but they didn't do it. They disobeyed. And they began to make agreements and make covenants with the people and intermarry and do those things. And we'll see that more and more through the book of Judges. Why have you done this? 
You know, questions are piercing like this, aren't they? Especially when they come from those who love us, who care about us. You know, this reminds me of Genesis 3.13, where they've fallen, and the Lord comes up and he says to the woman, what is this you have done? It's actually the same language, almost the same question. What is this you have done? I set you in paradise. I gave you everything. Ask you to do, not do one thing. Don't eat from that tree. Because you, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? The one thing he said, don't do. What is this you have done? You know, these questions that are so piercing. You know, I think about when Jesus interacts with Peter and asks some of those questions that just go straight to the heart. I think about times when I was a kid when I really broke my dad's trust. Man, those are, those are hard moments, aren't they? When the people that you love the most go, God, why did you do that? And it's not this anger that they have towards you. I've, I've felt this with my own kids. It's not anger. It's this just you're heartbroken, aren't you? You're heartbroken because you love them so much. Why have you done this? Why have you disobeyed me? And so the people have disobeyed. And this is what the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, goes on to say. Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, they wept aloud. They began to offer sacrifices, which we feel that too, don't we? When we're really pushed, when we know we've really failed miserably, we begin at that point to be repentant, be repentant. But if we look back in Deuteronomy, this same language exists. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord gives you. Do not look with them on them with pity. Do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare for you. And in Joshua, he told them, it says, then you may, may be sure on down, it says that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations. And then in bold, instead, they will become snares and traps for you. So you see, because of this disobedience, because of this partial, hey, we sort of are going to do it, but not really. We're not going to finish the job. We're not going to complete it. And this piercing question of why have you done this? Why have you disobeyed? I'm such a faithful God. Why? And he says, well, I'm not going to drive them out. They're going to be a snare. They're going to be a trap. They're going to be a thorn in your side. And this begins the downward spiral that we're going to experience through this entire book as we study through this book of Judges. I think God's promises for his people are realized both through his covenant and his consequences. And what I mean by that is we see his promises fulfilled, of course, through his covenant, through his faithfulness. But he is also just as faithful when he has consequences for us because of our disobedience. We see his promises play out both ways. Through both his covenant with his people and his faithfulness to have justice, as we talked about earlier 
in the chapter. Michelle Knight said this. Our friend Michelle, if you all remember her. The book of Judges uses shock value. You're going to see that with the remaining of the book. Cold, hard examples of human depravity. We have just touched on it. That chapter 18 of Leviticus just touches on it. There's a whole lot more that we're going to see, that we're going to experience through this narrative. But these cold, hard examples of human depravity to showcase how only God is powerful enough to save us. Only God is powerful enough to save us. And he will always be faithful. God's faithfulness to his purposes does not depend on our participation, but he gives us the privilege to join him in trust and obedience. God's going to do what God's going to do. We have seen that if you study the Old Testament, if you look at history, if you examine your own life, God is going to do what God's going to do. He's going to complete his purposes. He has a plan. And that plan is moving forward. And the great thing is, is that we get to join him. The song we sang earlier, he is, even when we are not, he is faithful. And part of the hint that we get from the line of Judah that eventually, as Preston talked about behind us, that eventually there's a king, and it's not the human king David, but it's King Jesus. So we have this ability as we live post-cross and post-resurrection. We've been given the privilege to join God in his plan, in his purposes, as we move forward. And that is the incredible news that even such a harsh book like Judges and some hard language and stories, but those stories should remind us of our lives. And this is what I said at the beginning. Don't look outward too much. Examine yourself. What's going on in here that you need to trust God more for? What's going on in here that you have been sort of obedient, but not really? That God's going, trust me. Trust me with whatever it is in your life, in your family, with the things going on. Trust me. And when I call you to be obedient, obey the things that I have for you. And the great news is, we aren't like the Israelites in the Old Testament. We have the Holy Spirit. And as we move forward, we can lean on the Spirit as we trust and as we abide in Jesus. A couple next steps as the worship team comes out. First one, allow your brokenness to drive you to repentance. You know, we talk about this book's theme is, is a faithful God in a broken world. And there's a lot of similarities, and, and we've got to be careful not to too quickly look at today's, but today's world is broken. And brokenness Ron and I were talking about this morning. Brokenness is not necessarily your sin, but the brokenness should lead you to see your sin. 
And when you see your sin, does that drive you to repentance? Do we view sin like God views sin? And that's part of what we're going to see in the book of Judges. He hates sin. That's why he said drive them out. Do we drive sin out of our life like the Israelites were commanded to drive out the Canaanite? Or do we allow a little seepage? We allow a little bit of the world in. So let's examine ourselves and let's move to true repentance. And then secondly, respond to God's grace with simple obedience. Golly, God is so gracious, isn't he? He is so good. He is so loving. He is so forgiving. And he just says, respond to my grace. Respond to me. John 15 talks about it. Abide in Christ. Obey his commands. His joy will be in us. His love will be in us. And then we'll be proven to be his disciples as we walk in that day-to-day abiding relationship. Let's be driven to repentance and let's respond to the grace of God. Let me pray for us as we continue in worship. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for how you love us. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you that you give us the opportunity to gather together to remember these stories, to remember how you have always been faithful to your people. And Lord, how you continue to be faithful to those who are responding to your grace, responding to the gospel. Lord, we love you and we thank you for who you are, for how you love us, and how you continue to to deal with us and walk with us, even uh, even when we turn away. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus, and be with us as we continue to worship. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.